The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. To introduce to all of you Stephen Batchelor, and also my delight to welcome Stephen to IMC again. Thank you for coming. Very grateful. And uh, Stephen um, has uh, uh, kind of been adopted by the international Vipassana movement as its uh, philosopher in chief. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, Stephen, has been uh, engaged in Buddhist practice for, I think, pretty much his whole adult life. He started off for a number of years as a Tibetan monk, knows Tibetan, translated from Tibetan into English, uh, went off to Korea and was a Korean monk for a number of years. And uh, then after his time in Korea, he came to England where he found himself um, in the circle of uh, Vipassana teachers in England. And in the process, I think, uh, he started going backwards in the study of Buddhism. And then now he's gone all the way back to the Buddha, and, uh, and where, he, where he's become a very uh, deep uh, reader of the text and thinker of the text. And it's uh, really exciting for me to be with Stephen and to hear his teachings and to hear what, he, what he's uncovered um, in his uh, exploration of Buddhism. Um, it's a particular pleasure for me to have him here because I feel a very a strong kinship to the way that he holds and he, he uh, presents Buddhism. And so it's very nice to have someone, a kindred spirit here. And, um, and it's, uh, I'm very grateful that you're here, Stephen. Thank you. Um, thank, can you hear me? Yes. <clears throat> uh, thank you very much, uh, Gil. And thank you all very much for being here this evening. I had actually wanted to talk somewhat along the lines that Gil so succinctly outlined and to talk about my own um, journey through Buddhism and particularly to reflect on where I'm currently uh, thinking and trying to um, organize my, my ideas. And the term that I'm sort of working with nowadays is the idea of a secular Buddhism um, or a secular Dhamma, Dharma. Perhaps I should say a word or two about what the word secular might mean. Uh, often in in um, much of the discourse around religion, be it Christian or, or Buddhist these days, the word secular is often used in opposition to the word religious. So if we talk about a, a secular approach to something, then we often contrast that with a religious approach. And so the term secular has kind of been adopted as um, a, a counter or even an anti-religious idea. I remember once when I lived in England and um, I was invited as a Buddhist to participate in a 
conference which had been put on by uh, a Centre for Islamic Studies in, it was either Oxford or Cambridge, I can't remember which. And the idea was to bring together what were called uh, people of faith in order to um, put together a common uh, front uh, against what was described as uh, the tide of godless secularism. (laughs) And so Muslims, uh, obviously since it was a Muslim initiative, uh, Christians of different denominations, uh, Jews, uh, Hindus, and um, a Buddhist, namely me, (laughs) um, spent a day uh, in this uh, large hall with about two or three hundred people uh, trying to arrive at a, uh, a common statement of faith which would um, be used as a kind of document to, put, to, to state clearly where we as people of faith stood in contrast to uh, secularism. Now, there were all sorts of difficulties, of course, in trying to um, fit Buddhism into this document which invariably kept mentioning the word God. But by the end of the day, I came to the very clear realization that I actually rather liked godless secularism. (laughs) I didn't see it as a problem. If anything, I saw the problem lay elsewhere. And since then, I've had, I think, to um, be clear in my own mind as to where I stand as a Buddhist. Um, I do consider myself a Buddhist, um, and I take that very seriously. My whole adult life, since I was 19 years old, has been spent doing nothing else but uh, the study and the practice of the Dharma. Um, I've literally not um, taken any time out to develop a career in any other field. Um, I've lived as a monk and then as a layperson uh, fairly simply, always in environments in which I've tried to optimize my ability to spend my time uh, studying, meditating, thinking, reading, and so on. And the more that this Um, has gone on, the more I feel at home in, um, as a Buddhist, the more I feel at home in a thoroughly secular environment. Now, let me just reflect a little bit more on where this word secular comes from. It has its roots in the Latin word uh, seculum, which means uh, this age or this world, or this time. So, not only is um, the idea of a secular Buddhism in contrast to what one might call a religious Buddhism in its outward appearance, clearly I'm not particularly drawn to religious ritual or 
metaphysical beliefs about what happens after death or what happened before this life. But also, as a Buddhist, I am primarily, in fact, I would say exclusively concerned with this seculum, with this age, with this time, with this world. Uh, I see my practice of the Dharma as entirely concerned with responding and understanding, hopefully, what it means to live in this time and this place and this world. Particularly in the light of what we now, I think, are broadly accepting as the the, 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 the general understanding of human life and the emergence of this universe and this planet and this world from the natural sciences. It, it seems that we have to accept at least the possibility that this may be the only world that, um, or, or the only world of this type and this kind that there has ever been and that there may ever be in the future. Someone sent me an article from a recent copy of Newsweek talking about how um, uh, the Homo sapiens, that's us, um, managed to prevail over uh, another form of humanoid, the Neanderthals, the prevailing uh, cliched assumptions are that Homo sapiens was just a lot brighter and together and with it, and the Neanderthals were kind of dumb brutes. And this, the article pointed out, is typical of the language of those who end up as the victors. (laughs) The, The victors, the winners, always get to write history. And strangely, they always tend to make themselves out as particularly virtuous and good. But recent uh, scientific studies of the period in which the Neanderthals died out suggests that um, the Neanderthals were not really so different from us after all and that their failure to survive may have been due to purely uh, contingent uh, reasons, possibly because they had not um, uh, had the the, the kind of physique needed to be able to chase game over open terrains, which became crucial for survival at the beginning of the Ice Age. But because they had been adapted to more forested habitats, They simply couldn't run fast enough or track game in a way that was appropriate to survive at that time. And a great deal of our understanding of evolution um, suggests that the, the fact that we're here now is not due to any specific uh, highly differentiated virtues that we possess, but to a large extent due to luck. And the dice just having rolled um, in our direction rather than in, the other, in some other form of life. 
We also see from the sciences how um, just as we have evolved over millions of years from other forms of life, there's no reason to assume that the kind of form we are now will last forever. That similar evolutionary adaptations and changes, catastrophes, natural and otherwise, which might occur, could lead quite easily to other forms of life maybe descended from us that we would probably not be able to recognize. Now all of this, I feel, is, um, is curiously illustrative of what the Buddha spoke of two and a half thousand years as paticca samupada, a conditioned arising. The, 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 the way in which he was so crucially aware of the impermanence of things, the change of things. I'm not suggesting that he had some privileged insight into what we would now call evolution. But the key ideas that underpinned his whole uh, thinking, his practice, his vision of the world are curiously compatible with the kind of worldview that we hold today. And in this respect, um, I feel that there is, in, uh, in the Buddha's teaching, uh, a very marked uh, break with what we would um, often characterize as religious thinking. Let me just give an example from the from the Buddha's own time. The Buddha lived about 500 BC and he lived in a world. He lived in a world that we can to some degree reconstruct fairly, uh, fairly much in detail. That we, that we are aware of, of many of the ideas that were current at his time. We have, particularly in the Pali Canon, uh, quite a vivid uh, sense of the kind of social and political and, and economic environment in which he lived. We have, in many of his teachings, um, uh, very strong evidence, I think, of how um, he, he, he was very often teaching in response to ideas that were already current, um, views of different uh, uh, teachers and uh, uh, classical Brahminic ways of thinking that he was quite aware of, that the Buddha did not, as it were, miraculously one day become enlightened, kapow, and then through that uh, quasi-mystical experience, realized what the Dharma was and then just spent the rest of his years on earth um, wandering around North India uh, teaching what he had found in his enlightenment. Unfortunately, that's often the kind of popular, cliched way in which the Buddha is presented. The Buddha, or Siddhartha Gautama, was uh, as much a creature of his time as we are of ours that uh, he did not exist in uh, a vacuum. Uh, He did not speak out of some uh, timeless, uh, absolute uh, condition of wisdom, but rather 
his teaching was a response to the conditions of his seculum, of his age, of his time, of his world. Now, the, the doctrine that we know most uh, clearly from that time is that which is found in these texts called the Upanishads. The Upanishads, or they're also called the Vedanta, uh, the texts that are the, the culmination or the end of the Vedas, uh, present a quite consistent sense of what the purpose or the value of human life is, what the aim of human life is. And that is to uh, break free, to liberate oneself, to achieve moksha, freedom, from the cycle of repetitive birth and death. And this is achieved uh, through the, uh, the oral teachings of the, the, the gurus that are uh, depicted in the Upanishads as entering into deep states of meditative uh, absorption, focused inwards into the nature of one's innermost self, which they called one's Atman, and that innermost self is utterly different and has nothing intrinsically to do with any of the phenomenal world, but in fact is identical to Brahman or the divine, the absolute, that uh, was the origin of all of this differentiation, all of this phenomenal world of what we see here, smell, taste, touch, and so on. So the aim of uh, much spiritual practice was about uh, disassociating oneself and one's consciousness from its identification with the body, uh, with things of the world, um, retreating into a deep mystical absorption whereby one achieves this state of unity, this unitary consciousness, in which you realize that what you really are is identical to the one or to the truth, or sometimes it's called sat-chit-anand, truth, consciousness, and bliss. And if one then dies at death in such a state of absorption, one will dissolve into this primary Godhead and no more be subject to the repetitions of rebirth. Now we can see in that, in that picture elements that are both common to Buddhism, the idea that in, in many of the Buddhist uh, uh, traditions, uh, in fact I think this would be common to all of them, the idea that the aim of the practice of the Dhamma is to achieve a state of liberation from the cycle of birth and death. But because that is, in fact, simply a restatement of the uh, classical normative uh, aspiration of Indian culture of that time, it is not something that is specifically and originally a teaching of the Buddha. Now, here we arrive at, a, I think, a rather a crucial point of, 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 of being able to ask ourselves what, therefore, 
was distinctive and original in what the Buddha did that cannot be found in the doctrines we know that already existed at his time. I'm not suggesting that Buddhism did not hold such a view of multiple lifetimes and trying to attain nirvana, which is sometimes seen as the end of rebirth. But we do have to notice that that is simply how Indian people, particularly Brahmins, the priestly caste at the Buddha's time, likewise saw what human life was ultimately about. Um, uh, was ultimately about. So, in this kind of interpretation, um, I would want to put aside those ideas politely and respectfully, not, and also not at this point asking myself, are they right or are they wrong? Is that true or is that false? I'm not interested in that. What I'm interested in doing is trying to dismantle the superstructure uh, of the Buddhist traditions that have emerged in the two and a half thousand years since the Buddha's time in order to begin to get back to what was truly different about what the Buddha was doing. What was distinctive in his teaching in contrast to what would have been normative and just broadly accepted in the context of his world. Now, when we have the Buddha uh, describing his own awakening, we find him speaking in language that is quite remarkably different from the language of his time. And yet this is often this point, which I think is, is central to the whole, um, uh, uh, the whole task of, of, of defining what Buddhism is, this point has often been blurred and has been forgotten. I think in its history, Buddhism uh, slipped back into becoming more and more like another Indian religion. And in some of the uh, courses that Martin and I have been teaching over the past six weeks in America, I've often uh, um, tried a little kind of thought, uh, a little, little kind of rather cheeky test. And um, I've read out a couple of passages, and then I've asked the audience to... I've left one word out and substituted it with X... And then I've asked the audience to guess what X is. Uh, this is one of them. Whoever in the past, the present, or the future becomes fully awakened to things does so by becoming fully awakened to X. That's the Sangyutta Nikaya 5. In other words, this is the Buddha speaking. As long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about X... I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world with its humans and celestials, its gods and devils, its ascetics and priests. And I'm not going to ask you now, but basically just, just for, for a couple of seconds, just think, well, what, what, what would that X therefore be? Now, um, when I've then asked the audience to tell me what X is, 
I usually get things like um, selflessness, um, emptiness, truth, uh, reality, or ultimate reality, uh, the nature of mind, impermanence, uh, dependent origination. Almost invariably, the answers given uh, come down to one thing, one privileged religious object, by gaining um, awakening to which one becomes enlightened or awakened, one becomes the Buddha. Now, uh, none of those answers are correct. Um, this is what the Buddha in fact says. He says, whoever in the past, the present or the future becomes fully awakened to things does so by becoming fully awakened to the Four Noble Truths. As long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about the Four Noble Truths, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world. Now that second quote is particularly important because it's the culminating paragraph of the Buddha's first sermon. In other words, the very first teaching he gave was one in which he declared to his five ascetic or former companions in asceticism in the deer park at Isipatana or Sanath what it was that he had woken up to. Not one truth, but four not some unitary experience of emptiness or the absolute or Buddha nature or something, but four truths. And this, I think, is characteristic of so much of his whole style of teaching. The Buddha does not seek to privilege a single um, thing or truth or reality or state of mind as somehow the key to awakening or liberation. But rather he recognizes that his awakening is not reducible to any one understanding but it is in fact a complex sequence of tasks that he has accomplished. We see this again and again in the way the Buddha um, presents um, his practice. He doesn't single out one object that we must meditate on that's better than any other object. But rather, he seeks step by step to, um, uh, to, 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 uh, to become more and more sensitized, more and more aware to the multiplicity and the complexity of experience. So when he talks about the human being, he doesn't talk about the body, he doesn't talk about mind or body and mind. He talks about five aggregates. And a lot of us who encounter Buddhism for the first time often are rather stymied by this, why five? And then when he picks apart each one, these are the aggregates of materiality, of feeling tone, of perception, of inclinations or 
volitional formations, however we translate it, of consciousness, when he takes any one of those, they break down into yet further elements. When he describes the process of consciousness, he does not think of consciousness as some kind of pre-existent awareness, but rather he sees consciousness as an emergent property of an organism encountering its environment. So consciousness comes into being dependent upon, in, in the case of, 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 of visual consciousness, in dependence upon an eye and a color and a shape that impact one another and that triggers the emergence of the consciousness of that object. The Buddha, unlike the Upanishadic tradition, does not think of consciousness in unitary terms. Consciousness is always consciousness of something. Otherwise, it is rather meaningless to just be conscious. There's always consciousness of. And also, when he analyzes the structure of consciousness, he recognizes that it is uh, complex, that it entails contact, feeling, perception, attention, intention the five Nama factors. So we have, uh, everywhere we look, um, the Buddha is opening up uh, through meditation, through reflection, an encounter with a complex world, a world that is constantly shifting and changing, a world that is profoundly uh, connected and causally related through time, He presents a world that is not um, uh, intrinsically me or mine. It is made up of impersonal elements. And I think perhaps most crucially, he recognizes that this world is shot through with tragedy and pain or suffering, dukkha. That it's not just an impersonal set of or array of facts, but it is a world that um, suffers and that we, in our experience, likewise suffer. He's he's, he's acutely attuned to um, the poignancy, the anguish, uh, the tragedy of life. The very fact that things are impermanent means that nothing, even the most ecstatic states of joy and happiness, are capable of lasting. That everything is subject to its inevitable end, its inevitable decay. That he starts his um, presentation of uh, the Dhamma with the statement that there is suffering and this is birth, sickness, aging, death, separation from what is dear, encountering what is not dear, uh, not getting what one wants. In short, the five constituents of experience are dukkha. 
This is the first noble truth. So the Buddha's awakening is an awakening in the first instance to the fact of the suffering world. So when he says that as long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about the Four Noble Truths, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world, the first um, of these truths to which he awoke was that of the suffering world, the very opposite of a transcendent absolute reality that we might call pure consciousness or God. This is a very secular vision. This is an awakening to the world of his time and his place. When we begin, or if we start to try to reconstruct the actual um, uh, uh, chronology of the events in his life, particularly as we can do with some degree of accuracy, from the time of his awakening until his death, uh, it's quite clear that he was not at all indifferent to the social and the political conflicts and strife that characterized his world. The dukkha is not just about some personal sense of dissatisfaction or pain that's in me somewhere. But the more that we get to know Dukkha, the more that we see that the world suffers. One of the most beautiful passages that uh, um, we find in the Pali Canon concerns uh, an episode where the Buddha, together with his disciple Ananda, who's his assistant, they go into a, a monastery, or at least a, a set of huts, where monks are living. And they go into one hut and they find uh, there is a monk there who's lying on the floor of his cell in a pool of his own urine and excrement. And so the Buddha and Ananda wash the monk. They um, pick him up and they lie him down on a bed. They give him water. They make sure that he's Uh, now cared for. And then they go to the other monks who are in the same place and they say, or the Buddha says, why why are you not caring for this man? And the others say, well, he's not not doing anything for us. Um, He's not pulling his weight in the community. We don't really, therefore, uh, have to care for him. And then the Buddha says, look, monks, you have no father or mother to care for you. Those who would tend to me should tend to the sick. Those who would tend to me should tend to the sick. Now, what is powerful about this passage, and it just occurs in one section of the vineyard of the texts on the monastic rule, is that suffering here is not some abstract idea. Suffering here refers to a man lying in a pool of his own piss and shit. That the Buddha cleans and helps and then critiques his fellow monastics for not caring for him 
on the grounds that those who would tend to me should tend to the sick. Now, I'm sure for many of us, this um, resonates with uh, Matthew 25, uh, where Jesus says, you know, when, um, you know, uh, when, whenever you um, cared for the those in prison, the naked, the hungry, you were caring for me. It's almost exactly the same idea. The only difference being that this passage is probably about 400 years earlier. And it shows that although this, I mean, if you haven't heard this passage, and I think it's not widely known in Buddhist circles, in fact, when compassion and loving kindness are spoken of, they're often spoken of in a somewhat abstract sense. May all beings be happy. Whereas here we have a very concrete instance of uh, a a particular person who is sick. And of course, by extension, old, dying, maybe also uh, any concrete situation where suffering occurs. Dukkha is always experienced in the specifics of a particular individual's life. That is where it starts. And the Buddha recognizes that if we are to uh, attend to him, which of course doesn't mean him, Siddhartha Gautama, but rather what he stands for, awakening, compassion, uh, wisdom, it starts by tending to a specific case of suffering in this world. Each of the four truths um, comes with a specific injunction. So, in fact, I abbreviated this passage. The Buddha, in fact, says, as long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about the 12 aspects of the four truths, again, he's teasing it out even further, not one truth but four, not four but 12 aspects of four, the, 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 the three aspects of the first truth are first to recognize suffering, then to perform the task of fully knowing suffering, and then to aim to, to, to accomplish that task of fully knowing suffering. So the first noble truth is not a propositional truth. Life is suffering, that is true. And if you're a Buddhist, then you accept that as true. But the first noble truth is true in a more pragmatic sense. It's true because by fully knowing it, certain benefits, certain positive um, uh, advantages in your deeper inner life can be realized. This is the way to begin. The practice of the Dhamma begins by the task of fully knowing dukkha. And that then leads to the second truth, which is that of letting go of grasping or craving. And the third truth, experiencing the stopping of craving. And the fourth truth, cultivating or creating the Eightfold Path. 
Now, we don't have time this evening to, to go into all of that. But basically, if you, I think what it boils down to is that the Buddha's awakening was not the awakening to some uh, privileged or absolute reality or truth, some kind of intuitive insight into the nature of the universe, but rather it was um, a complex engagement with the suffering world in such a way that one's, um, one's experience of suffering, one's ability to embrace the pain of oneself and others leads to a deeper sense of what it means to exist in this place we call life now. So that rather than be driven willy and nilly by our wish to to have what we want, to get rid of what we don't like, to run our lives as a kind of endless and frustrating quest to control the situations of the world in such a way that they will come to uh, gratify my desires and longings, which the Buddha recognizes as unrealizable, as, as, as an impossible ambition, we begin to realize that to lead a fully meaningful life, a life that's lived at depth, a life that is empathetic and open to the world as it is, we begin to open up in such a way that the habits of attachment and greed and fear and hatred no longer or less and less become the driving impetus for so much of what we do. That we begin to respond to life from another perspective, the perspective of not grasping, not clinging. And the third truth which is Nibbana. Nibbana is simply the, 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 the fading away, the freedom from and independence from such craving, such grasping, such fear and hatred. And once one is freed, even momentarily, from those imperatives, that opens up the possibility of living in this world from another perspective altogether, one that is unconditioned by greed and by hatred and by confusion. And that is called the Noble Eightfold Path. It's also called, this moment, entering the stream, or stream entry, which again is often presented to us as some kind of private a spiritual attainment that we gain after doing yonks and yonks and yonks of meditation. <laughs> Whereas in fact the Buddha describes stream entry as um, entering the Eightfold Path. He asks Sariputta, he says, the stream, the stream, what now Sariputta is the stream? And Sariputta replies, the stream, venerable sir, is the Noble Eightfold Path, which is appropriate seeing, thinking, speaking, acting, 
working, resolving or making effort, mindfulness and concentration. In other words, the Buddha's not presenting his path as one that is essentially a private spiritual experience going on in, inside me here somewhere, but it is the totality of our relationship to ourselves and to the world, but from a perspective that is not dominated and conditioned by grasping and craving. That, it seems to me, is what is truly distinctive about the Buddha's awakening. It's not an awakening to a state. It's an awakening to a process. And in that sense, it's ongoing. It's open-ended. As life unfolds from moment to moment and presents us with challenges which we can often never have foreseen, we're being called forth constantly to respond from a non-egoic, a non-addictive, non-compulsive place. And this is what I feel the Buddha means when he says that he was fully awake. He was fully awake in his ongoing engagement with life. And this is what I think is so radically different from not only the religious beliefs and uh, the kind of mystical traditions of his own time, which we find in the Upanishads, but also, in many respects, uh, is radically different from much of what we think of as religious practice, particularly Eastern religions, which do tend to emphasize transcendent mystical type experience but rather uh, a totally new relationship with life. And I have to stop there. Um, thank you very much for listening. Um, it's nine o'clock, and I'm afraid that's all the time we have. Um, those of you who need to leave, please leave. I will be around for a little while longer and would be happy to um, respond to anything you may have to say. But I do need to get back to San Francisco. <laughs> Thank you.